All right. So today we are talking about a topic that we have been wanting to get to that was that was on our list when we talked about starting this podcast. And uh, you'll understand why when we start to get into it. But today we are talking about midlife and not necessarily midlife crisis, but that could also be a big part of it. Nate recently read the book Falling Upward by Richard Rohr. And if you're not familiar with Richard Rohr, he is a Franciscan priest, and he's written a lot of interesting stuff. And he, in this book, Falling Upward, he dives into the two phases of life, um, and he splits life into our two phases based on sort of growing into your professional life and then transitioning into your higher self, as he calls it, in the second phase of life. So all that would include what we would term midlife and the way Nate and I have talked about it and looked at it for, for a long time is that midlife crisis is trying to make the transition between the two phases that, that Rohr talks about in falling upward. And so Rohr talks about this process and, and what it looks like what it feels like, what's happening, and, and what the goal should be. And so, according to Rohr, not everyone reaches the second half of life. Not everyone fulfills their call, their mission, their role in moving from the first phase to the second phase. And I think that the crisis, that midlife crisis, is, is an essential part of that transition, but we sort of repressed that, what would you call that, that rite of passage, moving from the first half to the second half. So Nate, what what do you feel like Roar identifies as a part of the first half and maybe the second half? Maybe you can explain what Roar thinks of the first half and the second half and does it resonate with you? Have you seen that in your own life or in people around you? Do you feel like his representation of the first half and the second half are hit the mark? Yeah. So to answer your last question first, I, to an extent, yeah. But I think Roar is such a Roar is such a gifted teacher and communicator that that his his description is a bit too clean for me in the sense that it's it's not messy enough. For me, for my experience, mm-hmm. so what what I understand that Roar is doing is he's saying that there's there's usually something that involves I don't know Matt suffering right that involves something that that shakes you an experience that like alters your your paradigm or your perspective a moment where perhaps the rug is pulled out from underneath you or you feel that way and you, you've spent you know a lot of your life or an ex, at least a good portion of your life trying to build build something and you have this experience or this season of your life where you realize holy smokes i i don't think this is it or or you at least ask the question what if this isn't it and so so i think that's that's how i understand he's talking about the two halves of life uh, and i think he clear yeah he clarifies at the beginning of the book that there are some really he says young people that get to the second half of life very quickly, um, and typically that they didn't choose to, right? 
it's because they had to encounter some really difficult circumstances that that like ripped the ego away or or got through and it's you don't have any choice but to face your stuff um, and then there are some really old people that never matured that they just kept building and kept building and kept building to keep themselves from thinking or from having to ask the question is this really it that's that's right my take and it's it's interesting I, I mean we we all see it we've all seen it how some people run into those times those the situations that, that involve suffering and they're changed by it even even at a young age and they they mature from it and some people just don't don't look the suffering in the eye but i think what to encapsulate what roar is saying is that in the first half of your life you find your life and in the second half you find your soul so in the first half you're finding figuring out how you fit into the world the external world the social world the career path um and mm -hmm. your family world and then in the second half of life you're finding your soul the the eternal part of you the true self the higher self the best eternal version of you that is not located in the external world you can't find it in the external world you have you can only find it by going in to yourself but you can also not ignore the external world obviously we have to engage with the world get, in order I get to survive health insurance, right but that's exactly exactly the bus doesn't pay for itself you know so you you have to engage with the world but then it's our responsibility and our privilege as humans to then once we've engaged with the world now it's time to turn inward to find our soul that part of us that is called back to what we talked about last episode the soul is the part of us that is called and that's how this relates to calling is that you're finding the part of yourself that's called by going inward. But if you never go inward, you not only miss your calling, you also miss your soul. Yeah. Th that was a way better description than when I provided, Matt. Well, yeah. that's why we're talking yeah. to each other okay. and not to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. It aligns with, it aligns with what, I guess it was, I, I think it was maybe Piaget, but psychologists, developmental psychologists talk about in childhood, early childhood, m moving from being a baby, from being completely dependent on your parents, you start developing the ego, the, the personal system structure within yourself. And the ego is by definition, a boundary. And that's what, that's what Roar is saying, is that childhood is all about establishing boundaries of what, where do I stop and where does the rest of the world begin? So I have to figure out who I am, but I can't figure out who I am by myself. I can only figure out who I am by interacting with the world because the feedback that the world gives me is all I have to go on to identify what's me and what's not me. That's all the ego is. The ego is trying to figure out what's me and what's not me. And so as small children, 
we, we figure out what's me and what's not me. And then as we move toward adolescence, now we've got to take the me part and fit it in with like the we part. We've got to, we establish, okay, this is me and this is you. Now, how do I integrate myself into a community, into a family, into a friend group, into a relationship, what, whatever yeah. it may be. But the, all of those are necessary parts of the process. I've got to figure out who is me, and then I've got to figure out, once I have that figured out, I've got to integrate the me into the yeah. larger community. Yeah, because I, to your point that you don't know, you, you only find out who you are by encountering who others are. It's like, it's like, how would you ever know that you're introverted if you hadn't encountered an extrovert, right? And that's the stuff you learned growing up. Now, how would you ever know anything about who you are if you hadn't encountered difference somewhere else? And as you get older, as you grow up, and you you start to try to integrate who you have figured out that you are into the world, maybe a way to think about what we're trying to do here is to say, some people never stop trying to change their own boundaries to fit into the world, right? Hmm. Because that's part of what you negotiate as an adult is to say, you know what, this is part of me that's that's just not, it's not changing. And if that means that I can't, it's it's why as you get older, you get fewer friends, right? Because you're like, you know what, this is, this is just the person that I am. And I got, I, I'm not going to try to fit into a million different groups now because I don't need that. And I wonder if part of what Rora is saying is that whatever it is that that happens, you know, why some people don't get there is because they don't ever stop trying to negotiate their own self to fit into the world. Does, does that make sense? Or am I, am I going, am I going on a rabbit trail here, man? No, that's, that's accurate. But I think you're hitting on a, another important point is that as the ego develops and goes and once the ego develops and goes and tries to fit into the social world, the, the relational world, it's like endless possibilities. I could fit myself into any social community that I want as a 10-year-old, as a 12-year-old. I can be friends with anybody. And that's the sort of the optimistic take is that you see in that phase, and this is the first half of life phase, endless possibilities. I can become whoever I want to become. I have the me structure is defined. If if you've been properly raised as a child, you have a, an ego structure. But the naivete is that I can take my ego and fit it into any context that I want. And so to your point, you reach an age where you go, I, I can't fit my my idiosyncrasies into a lot of different Those are contexts. actually the exception to the rule. So right? I'm Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That when you you discover your Enneagram type as just a, you know, case in point, that like my stuff is way different than everybody else's stuff. And sometimes, many times, they don't they don't align. They don't integrate. And so you reach a certain age and you go, you know what, I there's there's a 0% chance that I could actually be friends with this person or work with this person or be in a relationship with this person. And so then the world starts to narrow itself down. And that's 
a really important point is that the world starts to narrow itself down. The options start to narrow themselves down. And that's the whole point. That's To me, that's when the crisis begins, is when you go from a, a, an endless world of possibilities to now you, you, it's a very narrow frame to put your life in. Your, my own identity is, is all of a sudden very narrow. What I'm capable of is obviously finite. And who I'm capable of doing it with, those options are very much limited. And that's a very difficult experience, a very difficult process to experience. And some people don't even want to look yeah. at that or, or acknowledge that. Yeah. Does that make sense? So I think about... I think the moment where the world felt most open to me, I felt like I had the most possibilities was probably like 18 to 23. Okay. So college, but also just right before it and, you know, maybe, maybe a year or two after it, because getting out of, getting out of college and being early to mid twenties, you know, like, man, I could do, I could do all kinds of stuff I wanted to. And, and I got the rest of my life to figure it out. Like if, I, if it doesn't work, I guess I'll just try something new in a couple of years. Right. But I felt like I had so little knowledge of, of actually who I was, which was part of the reason why I wanted to do all of these billion different things or thought maybe I could. And at some point, at some point it, it like flips over on its head, right? And you realize that one, as you've gotten older, you've made decisions that have in some ways narrowed your life. And I think where Roar is getting at is when you get, I think what the the, the difference that Roar is trying to point out is that when you get to that point, some people are able to recognize and accept it and welcome it. And other people are going to are going to either rage against it or or have so much angst about their lack of what whatever, right? Getting older, whether it's your body limiting itself or you know, whether it's your own baggage at, you know, however old you are and you're like, man, I can't I, I can't figure this out or and that's the difference between those who get there and those who, who don't. And and if you're willing to accept it, I think, if you're willing to accept it, um, then you realize that that you're able to explore parts of yourself that you didn't know even existed prior to that. So in a weird way, by accepting the external limitations of the world, you're actually opening up so much of who you are to, I don't know, to discovery, right? It's like, that's the depth. That's the richness. I don't know, man. Yeah, that's it exactly. That's it exactly. And I think that's the crux. I think that's the crux. That's the midlife. You're, what you're talking about is the midlife point. And, and it's why we call it a crisis so often. Um, but I want to, before we get there, because we're definitely going to get there, I want to read a quote from Roar about the, the first half of life. Because he says, if you get mirrored well in early life, you do not have to spend the rest of your life looking in Narcissus' mirror or begging for others' attention. If you were properly mirrored when you were young, you are now free to mirror others and see yourself honestly. So what he's talking about is identifying me versus not me. And we need our, our caretakers to help us with that process. We need our families 
to mirror us so that we get to know ourselves and develop our own ego. And if you're mirrored well, then you come into adolescence and then eventually that 18 to 23-year-old phase where you know who you are as opposed to everyone else around you. You've seen yourself through the eyes of the mature people around you. If you're if those lines have been blurred where I don't know where who I am versus like I feel responsible for my mom's feelings, that sort of codependency, or however it seems like however I feel or whatever I do determines how mom feels. Or dad is sometimes here and sometimes not here. Dad is sometimes angry and other times not angry, and I don't know why. Well, it's like I don't know who I am engaged with the world. I'm not getting that proper feedback because what I'm doing is not being responded to the way that I predict that it will be responded to. If none of my predictions are accurate, then I don't know who I am or what my ego is. And so Rora is saying, if you get mirrored well early in life, you don't have to spend the rest of your life in your, you know, closest relationships and in your career begging for other people's attention and trying to figure out again, go through the process again of figuring out who you are in relationship to those people. So in my, in my work, I've had to, I've had to, the last couple of years come into contact with with some people that are heavily involved in the re- like addiction recovery community all right particularly aa and um, and they uh, two, the two folks i'm thinking about both both could could recite roar to you and i think roar actually works with a lot of folks that are that are in recovery and 12 step programs and whatnot but but the the point is for a lot of them part of the reason why they get it, and oftentimes it is at midlife where you seek help. And one of the reasons why they get so far in their addictions, like let's say if you're an alcoholic, is that they've, it, it's just what happens, but you're surrounded by enablers who don't reflect back to you who you are. They don't mirror you back to yourself, right? And so, yeah, and so when when 100%. when we have those experiences, or you know, I, I don't want to speak for their experiences, but... One of the powerful, re- one of the reasons why they think Roar is powerful is because Roar is articulating, I think, their experience, which is that at some point, your alcoholism, your addiction, your attachment, in their cases, destroys a meaningful part of your life, and you have no, you have no mirror left to to cover up whatever is underneath, right? And and so that's why when you when you go into recovery, you go into recovery as a family system because you learn how to stop giving false reflections back to one another and you've you've kind of got to uh, got to come out on the other side and it's really incredible to watch to watch some of to watch some of these folks that that have come out on the other side of their recovery programs because like I think the the first of the 12 steps is like I can't control my life has become unmanageable I am unable to control it that's that's right. the second half of life. 
is you realize like your circle of control is so incredibly small. Uh, and you have to like, you know, one of your 12 steps is to, is to do an honest accounting of my character. Another one is to make amends. So I have to actually deal with other people that I've hurt and I have to see myself in their hurt in, in a healthy way that's being reflected back to me. That gets you to the other side of life. Yeah. And I think that's right on the money because he, Roar also says that most of us make our homes in the familiar and the habitual. And that goes a, a long way toward what you're saying as far as addicts and recovery. It also goes, I mean, it's all, right. it's all of us. The, the ego, the ego is looking for, because of the way the ego has developed, it can only take the inform information based on the past into account because the ego was formed through our past. It doesn't identify with the future. It can, the ego starts to make some predictions about the future, but the ego was built on our lived experience. And so the ego wants to stay there in what's familiar and habitual because it, that's the only thing it knows how to protect or predict. Ooh. Is that familiar? And so even when we're in dysfunction and even when we're in dysfunctional relationships, it's like, I'm going to stay right here because this is familiar and habitual. And Rohr says the ego is the part of us that loves the status quo. And so the ego, what else could it possibly want than just to repeat what was able to allow us to survive? I survived, I'm 15 years old, I survived to 15. The ego's going, we did it. We made it to 15. Right. Let's run it back. Like, let's stay, we we know stay right here. I know that you're... Is that it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, we did it. We're here. We know that this is safe right here. Let's just stay right here. And so the ego holds us in dysfunction and yeah. dysfunctional relationships and an immaturity to keep us alive, which is the point of the ego, but it's also the limiting side. It's also the dark side of the ego. Yeah. So Matt, why do you think it, what, what's unique about the experiences that bring us to the other side? What's the character of those experiences? So that's a, that's a great question. And I think my, my previous perception of those experiences was just, you know, when you're in your 20s and you hear about midlife crisis, it, it sounds like somebody who just doesn't want to have an old body and eventually die. When you think about people in their 40s hitting a midlife crisis, oh, they're starting, their hair starting to turn gray and they don't like it. And so they panic and quit their job or and, leave, and go leave eat a hot spouse. dog at every ballpark in America and try to eat a hot dog at <laughs> every major league baseball stadium that's in our Matt stand-up routine which by the way is which is exceptional that's what a white and, and something only a white guy would do to, but to but it's the, the it's the guy it's the guy that um, buys the that gets into the Jeep Wrangler right guy that buys the Jeep Wrangler that unzips the top and cruises around to feel like they're, what's his name? Harrison Ford, Indiana, to feel like they're Indiana Jones. Like their life is actually an adventure 
but it was to me yeah. it was all just about like gray hair and my body's getting old and eventually I'm going to die. But what I've come to figure out after having gone through the process to the extent that I have, it was more like what you described, where you come out of adolescence into being a young adult and your early 20s and the world is your oyster. Literally whatever your parents and your counselors and your professors and whoever is in your corner are tell are asking you, what do you want to do with your life? As if it's entirely up to you what you decide to do with your life. Yeah. The possibilities are infinite. There's all the adults in your world are saying you can do whether implicitly or explicitly, what do you want to do with your life? Implying you can do whatever the hell you want. It's up to you. You just pick a path and go for it. And then, well, first of all, you believe that. That's the funny part about like a 22-year-old, at least a male. It's like you go, yeah, that sounds about Damn right. right. I, Damn I'm right. I'm sure. Can, I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to major in accounting, but if I wanted to, I could be a Navy SEAL. I could do that. I could, I've seen those, I've seen those monkey bars. I could do those monkey bars. It's like, if I just trained for like three weeks, I'd be ready, dude. <laughs> like I was going to major in finance, but you know, I, I or I was going to be pre-med, but I was like, I'll just do finance. It's like you, it's, you but you're I, just an idiot. But I want to be a youth like minister you can, instead. You know, I wanted to exactly. shout out to every friend I have. Good, kids are cool. Minister. You're all super smart and talented. Yeah. Right. But it's, but that's your, but it's all yes. of us. Yes. We all Correct. do that. And, and then you get to a point and here's the crux. So here's, here's the answer to your question. You either just run into an unlimited amount of brick walls. Like you're not good at anything that you yeah. try, or you're not nearly as good as you thought you could be. There's no pot of gold at the end of every rainbow that you try. And you go, what the hell is wrong with me? I am missing something. I, f I failed. Or there's, this is the other, there's only two paths and this is the other one. You knock it out of the park. Whatever it is you decided to do, you crush it and you're great at it. And all of your wildest dreams come true you're a rock star and you're touring the country and you realize when you're alone that this is not it at all. Like this doesn't feel anything like I thought it would. This is not satisfying any of the needs that I thought it would. The people around me are not the people I wanted them to be. You either miss out, you either miss the mark on all the goals that you thought you could achieve easily and you run into frustration and despair, or you nail the mark and you achieve everything that you dreamed of and more, and yet it doesn't give you what you thought it would. And you say to yourself, what am I doing? Like, I, there's, it's despair either way. It's despair either way. But that happens, and to Roar's point, it doesn't have to happen, you know, the day you turn 40. It could happen much earlier or it could happen much later, but that's or the crux of it. 
is when it right. when it yeah and we're in a single moment when it dawns on you when that despair starts to sink in and you go I don't have any I don't have any other tricks up my sleeve I don't have any other options I don't know how to escape this feeling of not being enough and not having enough yeah I think I think there are a couple of I think there are a couple of of scenarios that that come to mind when you were expo- when you're talking about that you know another scenario that 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 I would say matches for me what Roar is talking about is when I when I do attain success when I do achieve and then I realize that my own self-destructive behavior wrecks it right you're on you're on when you have to deal with your own patterns of behavior and you begin you get it you know you, you get you know, you start getting honest and the people around you start being honest with you, you know, those, whoever your people are, right? And you start realizing, man, there's like a pattern here. They could be in anything. Like, man, there's a pattern here. And this actually might not be good for my life, even though, even though I seem to be doing it well, or even though it seems to be something I've got a gift for, this is not good for my life. And that, that for me is, is one of those. I can think of really, you know, a couple of moments for me where I've experienced that that's the part that that transforms me is when I have to reckon with the fact that I I actually can't get past myself in these ways or I'm just going to keep destroying things. Yes. Well, yeah, and you're clear that that's good. That's an excellent clarification because I probably left that huge part out. The reason that you hit all the brick walls is because you're not good enough. Like you run into any any failure that you, that is the result of your efforts, it dawns on you and you look in the mirror, so to speak, and say, well, it, I, it, this failed because I failed because I'm not good enough at this yeah, to make it work. Whether, you know, whether it's career or relationship or parenting, I mean, for, for a lot of men, it's yeah. career where you go, I, I thought I could sell cars and I haven't sold any in six months. And you know what I mean? Like you, you just can't, but you, when you're 20, you go, this job sucks, dude. That's, that's a great distinction. And when you're 30, yes. And when you're 35, you go, what (laughs) is wrong with me? Like this should be easy. Yeah. And it's not. And, and it's like, I just, I just had five other jobs and I wasn't good at those either. And you go, I'm, I'm the problem here. Matt, did you ever read Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer? I gave it to you a long time ago. It's a tight, it's a really little book. Yeah, I haven't read the whole thing. He's like a common conversation partner with Roar and he's, and he's a Quaker. Okay. And he talks about, and he's an, he's an Enneagram three. So he's like an achiever. He's going to, he's an empire builder, right? But he's a Quaker. Mm-hmm. So, so there's, there's, there's like, there's tension there, you, you know? And he talks about, so he's, yeah. he's, the book is in true Enneagram three fashion. It's his journey with vocation, but he uses all of his fail his failures as examples. So like he turned, he turned his vocational failure into a New York times bestselling book, but as, as, a three as one does, but, but he talks about this first, he says like, you got it all wrong that you, before you tell your life what you want to do with it, 
you should stop for a second and ask your life what it wants to do with you. He talks about your life as if it has its own agency and you're just the body. And he talks about this moment where he got, he like got nominated to be a president of some, some university or something like that. He's a sociologist and, and he's a Quaker. So before he makes any big decisions, he's got to sit in silence with these people, with, with his, his community of friends, friends. And they just ask him questions. They sit in silence and ask him questions and they don't give him any answer, no advice. They just ask. And they keep, they keep drilling down of like, why do you actually want to do this? And he arrives at this point where he says, and this is about middle age for him where he realized, oh my God, I think I just want to be famous. <laughs> That's it. And, and it turns it like it's a tail, it's like a tailspin for him. He just like craters. Mm -hmm. And he concludes it by saying, I should not ever be president of anything. It should never happen. Wow. I, I would be a terrible president of anything because at the end of the day, I have to look at my, you know, my Quaker community and say, I just want to be famous. But they, they That's mirrored, amazing. right? In yep. an accurate way, not by telling him anything, but they just kept asking. They like took him on that journey. Yeah. They mirrored him properly so that he could, winner, winner, he could see himself. Dinner. Well, and that's, so that's another part of this conversation I want to get to is because that, that sounds to me like the second path where it's like, I'm being invited, I'm being nominated for president. I'm being invited to speak at, at this ceremony. And you think to yourself, I'm just trying to get famous. Like, you don't think to yourself, wow, this is, I'm really making a meaningful achievement to the world. I'm really making other people's I'm lives really better. I'm really satisfied by the work. This is, exactly, this is who I was meant to be. You think to yourself, I just did all this work. I just put in all these years of effort to get famous. And then you go, and then it's despair. And so that that's not to say that I, I'm probably a little too hyperbolic. That's not to say that you're a, an abysmal failure at everything you try. It's just that the degree to which you thought you would make your stamp on the world or put your imprint out there and achieve success in anything you decided to do, you find that there are limits to all of those paths, to all of those identities that you thought you could put on at 22, you they actually don't fit. You can't make them work. You thought you could make anything work, but it turns out there's so many things that you cannot make them work the way you want them to work, or even the way maybe you see the people around you making them work. It's like other people are doing this. It should be easy. Why is it not easy for me? What's wrong with me? And it's that moment that you should, if in, in order to transition properly, that's when you should be looking in the mirror and going, what, what does this mean? Who am I? And, and what am I supposed to do now? Yeah, I, I, it brings to mind two things. One, I think the fact that, I, I don't know that you were being too hyperbolic about failure. I think the fact that you're comfortable with failure I think that speaks to your comfort level with just talking about failure, right? Which you should be comfortable talking about it at, you know, by the time you get into your, you know, your mid thirties, you should be pretty comfortable. You should have failed quite a bit, frankly. And it's, it's like the, it's like the, the, 
the old guy on Jerry Maguire, who's the old sports agent who like chimes in four or five times throughout the movie with with life advice. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. His, his, you know, his name's like Squeaky Flanders yeah. or something. And he's, you know, he's always sitting at his desk. And, right. and right. one of the things that he, ch- and I, that's like one of my all-time favorite movies, but one of my, one of the things he says is he's like, it's like rules for living. If I'm honest, I have failed so many more times than I have ever succeeded. And, and we're fine when Squeaky Flanders says that in Jerry Maguire. But when we have right. to get comfortable with, with saying that about ourselves in an honest way, in an honest way back to ourselves. And that's when, that's when, when, when it's hard. And the second thing that, that brought to my mind is that I think with, with Roar, it, it also doesn't have to be your own failure in the sense that it's doesn't have to be that you didn't, that, how do we say this? There are times where people make choices for you that impact your life in a certain kind of way that you don't have any control over. And, and it can, it can cause chaos in your life. It can upend things. And I think those situations also can be the impetus to the second half of life where, a, mm-hmm. a, you know, and a diagnosis, right? Like you can't control that. There's so many situations yes. that, that, that will also transport you there, will carry you there that have nothing to do with your own failure at all. Yeah, and I, but I do think that what happens in those scenarios is that they point to some sort of cutting off of possibilities, where it's like if if a if a marriage fails, well, that possibility that you thought was endless is no longer, it's it's not infinite, it's finite, like that path. That door closes. If someone close to you dies, well, you, the infinitude of life all of a sudden becomes finite. And if you're, if you receive a diagnosis, all of a sudden the endless possibilities that lay themselves out ahead of you are now no longer endless. They're very limited. And so that is, to me, the moment. It could be any number of triggers, for lack of a better word. It could be any number of events that spark this introspection. But the introspection ultimately reveals to you, to the ego, makes the ego see that it is not infinite, that it is not limitless. It is bounded by by my own limitations not bounded by people oppressing me, but my own shortcomings or my own idiosyncrasies are binding my potential. And that's that's the part that you have to look and see. I don't I probably didn't connect the dots as well as I should have on that. But but to your point, the external life events ultimately cause me to look at the finitude of life. The to change my perspective from unlimited possibility to limited yeah. possibility. Matt, are we just talking about loss? Is that is that really what we're talking about? Because we talk about the l- limiting possibilities is really a loss of of a loss of possibilities, right? That's the that's the transformational mm-hmm. thing that's happening or the limiting of my body, right? The limiting of whatever it's it's a loss. 
And maybe that's just what we're talking about. It's it, it's like we're, I've heard this somewhere, but it's that it's not change that we're afraid of, it's loss. That every change embedded inside of it is loss. And maybe that's what we're talking about here is that these these experiences or these seasons of great change or something like that, what we're saying is that great loss. Yeah. Because Roar, Roar says it feels like going down. That's his quote, is that it feels like going down. So we see th the loss feels like we're moving in the wrong direction. And we're cha and that change is happening for the worse. It, it, to your point, we're losing. <laughs> to sum it up, we're losing. And it changes because a lot of times when a lot of times when you're young, change feels like winning. <laughs> like you graduate, you move from into the middle school building and then high school and then it all all that change feels positive. It feels like you're winning. And then you reach an age where you start, things change and you feel a sense of loss. And it's like, I'm losing. Like, I'm no longer winning. It, 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 that's what it feels like. It feels like going down. And that's when you realize, like, this is not what I thought it would be. This is not where I thought I was headed. Okay, so, so then what's the virtue of it? What's life like on this? What's life like in the second half? Once you go through that, it, does, do you come out better? Yeah, my, I mean, my thought would be that the true higher self is found in the second half of life, because narrowing down is essentially it's it's separating the wheat from the chaff. It's burning away all of the false all of the false self, all of the false parts of the ego, all the things that the ego told you you were, but you weren't. And what's left is the true self, the higher self, but now wise and humble and gracious and willing to sacrifice. It's all of those things that you weren't before you suffered and moved on to the next to the next half of life like jung says that all suffering well so all neuroticism is a result of the refusal to accept the necessary suffering of life so people neurotic you are we are neurotic as people to the degree to which we refuse to accept the necessary suffering of life so in turn, we shed that neuroticism by accepting the suffering, accepting the loss of whatever that is. And we move into the second half of life less neurotic, less susceptible to negative emotion and affect, more resilient, more courageous, and more focused on what's real and what's not. Yeah, it's, it's pretty paradoxical, isn't it? Yeah, completely. I, I'm thinking about those descriptions, and it's you. You only get there by losing, and when you just, for me, so much, so much of like coming to terms, coming to the the growth that's come out of this has been when I've been able to come to terms with it. When I've just said, you know, f it, I'm done hiding, right? Or, or I'm just gonna make the choice. You know, I'm gonna call my brother. I'm gonna make the choice. 
to just, you know, lose, lose my shit and allow somebody to really see what's happening. That the, the transformation comes when I'm able to accept that those things are there, right? And it sounds honestly so passive to me, you know, where, where you're like, you know, you, you accept your limitations, you accept getting older, you accept that you can't do these things, almost like you're resigning yourself to surrender or you're surrendering. And you are doing that. But what you discover on the other side of that is that you're, you're yeah, you're giving up on all of the things that brought you, that you realized did not bring you what you actually desired. Mm-hmm. And so you're now able to invest yourself in, in the things that do in the ways that you want. At least you have that, even if you're like still, I mean, you still got to, even if you still have to work this, you know, like work this job and grind it out, you at least have the awareness that this is not what's going to ultimately make you happy. And you know what some of those things are that will, that do ultimately satisfy you. And so you're able to be, you're able to be active. You're, it's, you're like, you're energized in it and you're engaged. And uh, I don't know, does that, does that make sense? Well, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. And it sounds, it sounds passive. It sounds like a passive process, but really all you're doing, it is passive because all you're doing is just letting go of, it's like you're holding up, you've been holding up a false mirror. And so when you just let that mirror go and you let it fall and shatter, that's a passive process. It doesn't sound like the hero's journey, but when that shatters and you let go of the false image of yourself, now you're free to look at the true self and you're free to see what's truly there and what does bring you joy and fulfillment. Because the false self was not. The false image was not and never could. And it's it's a passive process, but it's, you know, possibly the most important process. Otherwise, you're completely disconnected from reality. And nobody wants to be disconnected from reality. Like, we all need to feel like a world we're engaged with is the real world. And the self that we think we are is who we are. Nobody wants to feel dissociated. And looking into that mirror makes us feel dissociated. Looking into that false mirror will, if we continue to, after we know it's false, when we know the mirror is false and we continue to hold it up, it's it's dissociation. It's it's part of us separating off from from the true self. We talked about this this quote maybe just this past weekend, but when I turned, when I turned 35, uh, you know, had a party, everybody left. There were just a few, a few friends around and, you know, we, we'd all had a little bit too much to drink and somebody was like, all right, what have you learned at 35? Right. And I have a vague recollection of this, but one of my good friends reminds me of it regularly. And it's like, I didn't realize what I was saying at the time, but what, one of the things I said was I use this, it was a lyric from a song. You can lead a horse to water, you can even make it drink, but you can't change its point of view. It's always just going to be, it's still going to be a horse having its head shoved in the water and you can't change that. And I think for me, that's the, that's a good example of the first and second difference between the first and second half of life. 
right? That maybe I was like just just keying in on on something that I knew was there, but you know, and I'm, and and obviously, I, I don't want to. I'm I'm not there, but I was like I was I was like intuiting something that the first half of life you just spend so much of your time trying to get trying to control so that you can keep your options open so that you can do what you think you need to do to be happy or have your needs met right or 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 hide hide from the shadow self and the second half of life is like pff, on my better days it's like well, I can't, I can't change I can't change that person's change their mind so I'm not gonna I I'm I'm not I'm not losing sleep over it or right again on my better days I'm there and I think that's for me what the second half looks like is is a, a recognition of a loss of control or or a recognition of the because you're not actually losing control you never had control right it was delusional from it was delusional from the jump it. but it's the loss of the delusion that that I can control the world it it makes me think of that need to breathe song called difference maker where they're just trolling everybody that that's out there. They're like, I'm making a difference, right? I, uh, it's, I haven't oh, it's heard so that, good. but I, I want to now. You know, yeah, you yeah, and it's, it's like so subtle, but it's about a guy who walks up the hill, stands up on the rock, top of the rock, and looks at his hands and looks at the people and says, I am the difference maker. The friend, He says, the friendliest of friends of God. And then, and it ends by saying something like, we're all... We're all liars. We're all thieves. We're all astronauts. So if you're beating death, then raise your hand. But shut up if you're not. It's like the first half of life is like yes. It's Tom. It's Tom Hanks on the island saying, "I have made fire," dancing around it. Look what I have produced. Exactly. And the second half is like, oh, like can we all just acknowledge for a minute that I never, I never made fire that, at all. I just banged the rocks together or whatever. You know. Right. Anyway. Yeah, and then I'm on this island. That's a good way to put it. Well, yeah, and imagine how neurotic, how neurotic you would be if you spent your entire life thinking that you could control other people and their perspectives. Like you have to, in order to not drive yourself off a cliff, you have to come to that resolution that you're that I'm limited in my power in my abilities in my influence in my potential like I have limits and boundaries and my time is best served following what I've the path laid out ahead of me and not an endless array of opportunities and and getting needs met. I'm glad you said it like that because I feel like that's really what we're doing. And in Enneagram terms, I, I've been wanting to to get to this point because I think it's fun. We talked when we talked about the Enneagram in episode one, we talked about how threes over identify maybe we maybe this was the shadow episode, but threes over identify with the persona and fours over identify with the shadow. Week. That was the shadow episode. Okay. Okay. So the persona is a necessary development in the human experience. You have to have the persona, as we discussed, to, to accomplish anything in the first half of life. The first half of life is about developing your persona so that you can 
interact with the world and, you know, eat and you can get food and resources. But the threes over identify themselves thinking that they are that persona that they've created, which I think makes this midlife phase very difficult for threes. And you you brought up Parker Palmer as a three running into that. I think that experience for threes of seeing themselves as not just the persona that they've created is very difficult. And it's difficult in a sense for all of us as we've talked about. But I like looking at the archetypes as sort of a an exaggerated version of our own experience where the three is the archetype of the persona. So transitioning from the persona, letting go of that false self and embracing the true self is very difficult. But the flip side of that coin of fours overemphasizing the shadow and over-identifying themselves with the shadow means that the first half of life is the harder phase. And I, you know, I'm, I used to make memes about the extent to which fours would spend their lives trying to avoid getting real jobs because they just want to do, they want to do something yep. meaningful like art or music, whatever it is, self-expression, because it feels fraudulent. Like working in the post office feels like a, um, it feels like a betrayal, a self-betrayal that you have let go of the true self in order to have this persona that, you know, works at Home Depot. You can't, or works at the bank, God forbid. Like, it feels like, it feels like yep. selling your soul, honestly. And, uh, you know, as a four, someone with a four wing, I, I, I get that to a degree. It feels like selling your soul. It feels like selling the first half of life. I mean, it feels like selling this trading in the second half of life for the first half of life. And so we all experience both of those yeah. to some degree. But if you look at the Enneagram archetypes of three and four, you can see really clearly what's what's happening here between the first half of life and the second half of life and the two polarities, how they pull at us from they're both essential. The first half is essential. The second half is essential for our spiritual development. But the process we follow to get there can either save us a lot of suffering and, and help us move into the true self, or it can cause us a lot of suffering as we resist it. Yeah. I, and I think you made an important clarification there that they're both essential, right? To be in the first to be mm -hmm. one, it's not like they're siloed. It's not like you, you like cross the threshold and now you know you're officially in the second set, the second half of life, right? Because who can ever actually get get there to attain all of those things, to embody all those things? You can't. But they're both essential, and to an extent, they're not good or bad, right? I mean, I w I want the things in the second half of life. Right. I want to be that person. That I want that maturity, but. You're you're not you're not looking at a 25 year old being like, hey, it, it's time it's time that you you mature 30 years, 
you, you should be acting like a 55 year old. You're not like hating them for thinking they have all the possibilities in the world. That's what they're doing, man. That's how you figure mm -hmm. it out. It, it's like, if you're just, if you're just sitting on your ass all day, you, you're going to have the opposite experience. You're still not going to get to the second half of life, but you're going to have an opposite. It's for the opposite reason. Cause you never figured out that the world is still going to be hypothetical at 60, 70 years old. Yeah. You never, you're, you didn't, it, like the Truman Show, you never put your hand up against That's the it. edge of the bubble. Yeah. So you've got to do it. Like it's, it's, it's essential. Yeah. But I, both, it, yeah, you, well, whether you're out, like you're, you, again, you want, you're 20, at 20 years old, you should be thinking, dude, I could do so much. Unless, unless you've already been through some, you know, been through some shit as a kid or as a teenager and you got there right? According to Roar, and you got there as a teenager, then, then you're the guru. Otherwise, otherwise, man, you're just like, you know, you're, you're like shotgunning beers on Saturday night. And you're like, Hey man, I can recover by Monday and conquer the world at 22. I, this isn't a problem for me. Yeah. You need yeah. a little bit of that, that energy. That, I don't know. Virility. Is that the right word? That like, that like life force. Yeah. Yeah. That, That's that it, pulse in your veins. And I, I think, I think to Roar's point, I think those people who did that, who went through that at a younger age, much, much more likely to be generations ago, <laughs> centuries ago, when life was far more difficult, when, you know, initiation as a man or as a woman was far earlier, you know, like yep. early teens, you know, you get a little peach fuzz on your upper lip boy, you're joining the hunting party and you may not come back. And we don't have that now. And so that's why for us, it's like it doesn't happen until maybe mid thirties yeah. or late thirties. Often it doesn't, it doesn't happen until that time. The other thing that it made me think was that if you, in, in those previous generations, if you just survived if you made it to the second half of life, if you live to be 60 or 70 years old, it's because you knew some shit. Like you had some magic powers yeah. that you never, you never stepped on a rock and broke your ankle and got eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. Like you made it. Like just by getting to old age, you qualified yourself as someone to be respected and listened to. And today, because life is so easy, I mean, in relation to far, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, it's it's not as difficult to make it to that to the age that corresponds with the second half of life. We we rail against young people who don't respect their elders. Well, there's some truth to that because now we got elders everywhere. And some of them don't deserve our respect. But in previous generations, if you made it there, if you lived to be old, you were almost like you were a shaman. You were a magician. How did you how did you tell me how you did it? Let me walk in your way so that I too can survive all of these yeah. adventures. Tell, tell us how many cold showers you're taking a day in order to live this long, right? But but Matt, think about think about social security. Exactly. Sixty two years old. Do you get social security? Yeah, because if you're a Midwest farmer in 1934 surviving the Dust Bowl and you make it to 62, look, 
you're you're good, man. You're, yeah, like here's some money. You're you're we we got it from here. You know, enjoy the enjoy the next <laughs> right, three years right. of your life. Yeah, not the next no. thirty years of your life. Enjoy the next three. They're yeah. on next three are on us, pal. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Well, the 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 good news is the encouraging part is that Roar says there are no dead ends, and in this path, in the transition from the first half to the second half, there really aren't any dead ends. Any number of roads can lead you to that introspection, to the realization that going down is going up and losing your life is the only way to gain your life. So no matter, you know, you started this conversation talking about AA and addicts, there's no, there are no dead ends. Whether you're, you know, uh, working in a middle-class job, whether you're a rock star, or whether you're attending AA, any possible potential path can lead you to let go of those false mirrors and let those shatter so that the, the true mirror will allow you to see yourself and allow you to transition into that second half of life. Yeah, I'd actually forgotten he said that. That's that's great. There there are no dead ends. There's, he says there spiritually no speaking, just, there are no dead ends. But I think we talked about Parker Palmer earlier. I think that's what Parker Palmer says too: is that it's just you've you know you go all the way down until you go all the way up. It's that's what you that's how it works. Um, and you, you stop seeing you stop seeing these these limitations as things that are impeding you as impediments. And you start just seeing them actually as guideposts, like, like, oh, this is telling me something. It, it's like when I, my first student teaching placement that was at a kindergarten. I did a kindergarten for like six weeks. And I was like, Schwarzen, I was like Schwarzenegger in, I didn't in kindergarten cop. It, you know, like, like, like I got to try to get kids to like sit on the line. And can you not, like, can, can we not reason through this together? Will you just sit on the line, you know? But it's a, it's like a pretty clear depiction right. of my own limitations. Well, now that I think about it, that was probably one of like the best experiences I ever had because those five-year-olds are like, they're like crying and they hate you. And they're like, we're going to reflect back to you exactly who we think you are. And we think you're, we think you're a barbarian. <laughs> no. So maybe I shouldn't teach five-year-olds, right? Anyway, those are just, those are just like, yeah. If you can get there, right, on your better days, those are just guides. So, Yeah. And he says, the, Roar says, the soul has many secrets, but they only reveal themselves to those who seek them. So, you know, there are no dead ends, but also no, no amount of tragedy or trauma will lead you to your true self unless you're, you're yeah. seeking the yeah, true self right. with, enough, with enough humility and integrity to to look into that mirror. Um, because again, we all know people who have dealt with incredible tragedy and trauma, who have come out incredibly mature and gracious and loving and kind, and, and those who have come out for the yep. worse. Because the soul has secrets, but as Roar says, they only reveal themselves to those who seek them. Yeah. Well, I. Yeah, yeah, well, I this think was that's a good one. note to end on. 
this was this was awesome. Yeah, especially for us at, at this point. This is this was on our list because it's something that we're uh, we're not far removed from, if if we are removed at all. Yeah, it's it's the lens that we're looking through a lot of life with right now. I think, I think we're I think we're both there. Yeah, that's it exactly. That's yeah. it. All right, brother. All right.